0: KMTT Kimitsion Te Torah. Today is Wednesday. We have the weekly Shiur on the philosophy of the Filmagon and his school by Habab Yakim Krembein. Shalom Lachim. In our last Shiur, we raised a basic point of philosophy and theology which can be seen as a major root of the Machloket between the Mitnagdim and the Hasidim. We call this the question, the question of Timtsum kipshuto or Timtsum Lo kipshuto, an abstract question which has great practical ramifications. As you recall, we outlined the doctrine of the Ari HaKadosh, that HaKad Rosh in creating the world, did it through an act of tzimtsun, of contraction or of self-limitation. And the question is, how literally are we to understand this self-limitation? I pointed out that it's certainly not to be understood in the physical sense or in the spatial sense. But in some existential sense, which is abstract and hard for us, far, hard for us to grasp fully. But nevertheless, there is the view that this self-limitation, this tzimtzum, is an actual event, an actual happening, which changed reality. And whereas before the world was created, only Hakadosh Baro who existed, and his existence. Encompassed all and filled all and was infinite in every possible sense. However, once he created the world through this process of Tsim Tsum, the result was that now there are two realms of existence the godly realm and the ordinary physical realm in which we live and which we directly experience. This is the view which is attributed to the Hasidim, and as you recall, the, this dualistic view of reality is something which the Gra does spell out in um, more than a few places. On the other hand, we have Tzimtzum Lokipsuto, the non-simplistic view of Tzimtzum, which views the Tzimtzum, this contraction, as uh, a figure of speech, or perhaps... A, uh, an act of concealment of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in which he uh, achieved the end of creating the impression that there is an independent existence uh, apart from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the world which we see around us which appears to manage itself through physical law uh, where the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not felt and the Hasidim maintained, but this is merely an illusion. And the Tzimtzum is not real. And the task of the person is to get at the true reality, to unmask this uh, situation, and show that HaKadosh Baruch really does exist everywhere, just as before creation. And we pointed out that the ramifications of this issue are many, because if reality is dualistic, and the realm, the mode of existence in which we find ourselves is basically apart and detached from the godly realm, then in order to link up, in order to achieve some kind of connection or the veikut or communion with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we can only do it through those ways which HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself defined, and of course he did so in his Torah, through Torah and mitzvot, this is our avenue of approach to the Kaddish Baruch Hu, while in this world which is so far away from him. However, the Hasidic view was that HaKaddish Baruch Hu is everywhere. There's a divine spark. Mitzvot's elokut can be found in everything. And it's not necessary to uh, do a Mitzvah or to Torah in order to find the Kaddish Baruch Hu, because simply through your act of... Uh, Kavana, through your intention, through your awareness that HaKadosh Baruch really is everywhere, then that really is an act of unmasking, which uh, achieves the uh, religious end of showing that HaKadosh Baruch is really omnipresent. This uh, approach devalued the Torah and mitzvot. Uh, but some things about this presentation have to be uh, clarified. First of all, we saw that the Vilna Gaon criticized the Hasidic approach in very strong terms, and he compared it to Avodah He said, he, he attributed the, to the Hasidim the sentiment, Ela Elohecha Yisrael, Ko Etz Evin, just as. Uh, Am Yisrael said about the golden calf. And the question arises, is this really Avodah Zarah? There is a, uh, a well-known doctrine of uh, Api which is called pantheism, which sounds a lot like what we've been talking about in relation to the Hasidic viewpoint. Pantheism, meaning that Nature is God. God is everything. Uh, However, it's clear that it's not really the same. And the Hasidic viewpoint is not pantheism. And in order to make the distinction, uh, scholars have devised the the term panentheism. Not pantheism, but panentheism, uh, which means not that God is everything, but uh, God is everything in everything, or everything is in God. Uh, perhaps two sides of the same coin. Because God's presence can be felt within everything, and existence, all of existence, exists within God. But there's not this identity between the physical world as we know it, and divinity. Now this is, uh, and they statue to you like a fine distinction, but it, it's really a major th- distinction, and very essential. Uh, however, the Gra was not impressed by this uh, fine distinction, and he did liken this uh, Hasidic viewpoint to Avodah Zarah. Uh, on the other hand, we said that the Mitnagdic view is traditionally viewed as Tzinsum Kipshuto. And we pointed out that this view of tsinsum Kipshuto, the conventional understanding of the Uh, limitation of uh, divinity in order to make room for worldly existence that this view is also a Kabbalistic view and it would be inaccurate to say that the Hasidic view is the mystical one and the Graz opinion is the more philosophical one but yet there is some uh, Discussion among scholars as to what the Gra really thought about this matter, uh, because we know that in Nefesh Achayim, which is a work written by the disciple of the Vilna Gaon, we do find an idea which sounds very much like this uh, Hasidic doctrine, namely that even after creation, there was no change in the nature of divinity, and the really fills everything and is omnipresent today, just as he was before anything else was created. Uh, Reb Chaim however, modifies this view in a very complex way, which uh, we can't really get into here. Reb Chaim says that while there is truth to this doctrine... This, he says, is only one aspect of divinity. Uh, and there is another mode, another aspect of the divinity, according to which, really, Hakadosh Baruch withdrew from this world, in order to grant it an independent existence. Uh, this uh, duality is something which uh, is hard to understand, and it's even harder to explain. And it's not really our... Uh, aim here to get into the de- details of this approach but uh, given that there is some inkling or some vestige of the Hasidic approach in Rav Chaim Mif- Mif- approach, approach uh, therefore scholars suspect that it would not be really tenable to say that the Vilna Gaon thought otherwise but one thing is for sure whatever the Vilna Gaon thought theoretically about this issue He nevertheless saw the popularization of this doctrine and the placing of of this idea of the omnipresence of divinity at the center of Avodat Hashem and the building of an entire religious way of life around this idea and presenting this as suitable for the masses. Milnegon saw this as a tremendous danger to the future of Torah and Mitzvot and to Am Yisrael. And Repchayim Velazhen did as well. Because even though Repchayim does exceed some validity to the theoretical Hasidic viewpoint, he nevertheless stipulates that a person should not base his Avodat Hashem on this approach because there is another aspect of reality according to which Shekhov and Shebarchul did withdraw himself from this world. And the whole idea of Torah Mitzvot is based on this assumption. Uh, for example, says Rav Chaim according to this view that a Kaddish Baruch was everywhere, so all places are equally holy, equally pure, equally infused with the Divine Presence. So how can it be, for example, that there's a prohibition in the Gemara and in the Shulchan Aruch on thinking about Dvarim Shebiktushah in an unclean place such as the lavatory, the bathhouse. The lavatory and the bathhouse, according to the Hasidic doctrine, have a spark of divinity, just like any other place. Uh, so it's clear, says Rebbe Chaim version that we are not meant to base our Avodat Hashem on this view of God being everywhere, but rather on the more existentially sound viewpoint, according to him, Which is that we live in a world which is characterized by differentiation, rather than rather than than by divine unity. And in our world, profanity, uncleanness, tuma are all things which are possible and which are very real. And this physical, differentiated uh, reality is something which dictates our religious practice and which and which is really at its root. Uh, I'd like now to explore some of the ramifications of this controversy, which I said was of great practical significance, and which the Vilna Gaon saw uh, as a major point, a major focus of his battle against the Hasidim. Uh, I, it should be obvious, I but I will make clear anyway that I'm not taking sides on this issue. Uh, but by the nature of things, since this series is about the Vilna Gaon, so uh, things will probably come out sounding like they're being said from the viewpoint, from the vantage point of the mitnagdim. Uh, let's talk about for a few minutes about minhagim. Minhagim of Mitnagdim, Minhagim of Chasidim. This whole idea of Minhagim is something which preoccupied the Vundagon greatly. Because what's a Minhag? Minhag sounds like something which really has no source, but which people do. It's customary to do. It's not something you have to, it's not a mitzvah. The instinct of the Vundagon was really against this idea. What does it mean, Simply cut You do it because it's customary. You don't do anything because it's customary. You do things because they're part of the Torah. And uh, when the Vilna Gaon was confronted with various customs that had become accepted in the world of Ashkenazic practice, his reaction went in one of two directions. Either... He thought about this minhag and analyzed it and decided that it was had no source and therefore it had no validity, validity and it ought to be stopped. A small example: the Vilna Gaon was opposed to what we do in Chodesh Elul. Every day after Shacharit, we say David Hashem Ori. The Vilna Gaon didn't do this. That's you no, know, that sounds to us like a very harmless custom, a nice custom, but he didn't do it. Because it's not in the Gemara place. There are other customs that the Vilna Gaon fen- felt even more strongly about. And he felt that they had no source and they were actually uh, wrong. This was one direction that the Vilna Gaon took. Uh, at other times, and this comes through in many uh, of his comments in the Be'er HaGran Shulchan Aruch, uh, when he was faced with a minag, he worked very hard to find the source. Even though at first glance it appears that this is a uh, minag that somebody devised or somebody said you should do. But the Vilna Gaon in his commentary in the Shulchan Arach points out that this really is something which is grounded in the sources. But yet, this problem of in Hagim, uh surely vexed the Vilna, the Vilna Gaon. And uh the scholar R. A. M. Morgenstern, who did a great deal of research on the Vilna Gaon, uh, particularly surrounding the Vilna Gaon's attempt to go on Aliyah to Eret Yisrael, he discovered a source according to which the Vilna Gaon, while he was on the way to Eret Yisrael, commented that when I get to Eret Yisrael, I'll be free of the Pele in Hagim. The implication is that one of the reasons that the Gaon wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael was because he felt that as long he lived in the midst of Ashkenazic Jewry in its home setting, all these minhagim obligated him and he couldn't free himself. Whereas Eretz Yisrael, which was a, a sparsely populated country at the time, uh, he felt that he'd be setting up a new kehillah. In which he could decide and uh, dictate those minhagim which he thought were authentic and do them, and the other minhagim which were groundless and he could more easily do away with them. Now, let's contrast this approach of the Vilna Gaon to uh, the Hasidic approach. Let me uh, illustrate. I'd like to uh, quote to you from the Luach Minhagim of the Belzer Chassidim. In this Luach, in this uh, calendar of Minhagim, we read, Be'le'el Yom Tov Ein Minhag Lechol The context here is Shavuot, but this comment apparently is true about all of the Yomim Tovim, The evening meal on uh, uh, Yom Tov Eve, the minhag is not to eat farfel. What does it mean not to eat farfel on this e- the evening meal on Yom Tov? Uh, here the explanation appears in parenthesis. Apparently, on Shabbat, there is such a minhag to eat farfel on Ere Shabbat, in bills, uh, And the following comment appears here as the Belzer Rebbe said all of the foods all of the courses that we customarily eat on Shabbat and on Yom Tov they're not done because they taste good it's not simply to be to fulfill the mitzvah of Simchat Yom Tov but every dish corresponds and is parallel to a certain service, which was done in the Beit HaMikdash. neged right, The fafu corresponds to the lechem hapanim. And here appears the further comment, that therefore the fafu is eaten together with soup, because the soup is hot, and steam arises from the soup. And this is an allusion to the lechem hapanim, which was warm on Shabbat even though uh, it stayed on the Shulchan for a whole week, but on the Shabbat, the second Shabbat, when it was removed and replaced with the nurech miraculously it was still warm, and this is alluded to in the fact that it's eaten together with a hot soup. But in any event, this is true only on Shabbat, whereas on Yom Tov, lo lechem apanim, there, was, there was no Avodah and the Mikdash, associated with Echem Hapanim on Yom Tov. If Yom Tov came out in the middle of the week, so the Echem Hapanim just stayed there the same uh, as it did the day before. And therefore, there is no necessity to eat farfall on Yom Tov. Now, look at the tremendous significance that is being accorded here to food. Different types of food are seen as being corresponding to Aphrodot Beit Mikdash, that this whole thing, this whole idea, has no source whatsoever in, certainly not anything that can be found in the Torah Hanikalait. And we've seen in the past that the Vilni saw eating simply as something, very, uh, very simply, that has to be done in order to be healthy, in order to be, uh, to be able to serve God. But it has no intrinsic significance. But according to the Hasidic approach, that God is everywhere, then the uh, distinction between Torah and mitzvot, and eating, is not there. It's simply, essentially, all of it is the same. Every single thing is a vehicle of Eudat Hashem. And uh, from here we arrive at this panel, Edis Minhag, that you should eat farfel not only farflah, but all the other dishes, which are not mentioned here, which apparently are spelled out to the best of my recollection, in other Beelzeau sources, there really is uh, uh, mention of other types of food which are uh, eaten on Shabbat, and which have this significance of being parallel to the Beit HaMikdash. Uh, to give another example... Uh, I have in my family uh, relatives that are Hasidim, Baruch Hashem. Uh, and sometimes we have a wedding where there are a lot of Hasidim. And the Hasidim come from different, different dynasties, different uh, courts. I recall recently at one of these weddings that a certain relative, who was not a Hasid, asked another relative who was a Hasid, Look, I see here all kinds of hats, different types of hats here. Can you explain to me uh, what's the significance? How do I I identify, according to the hat, what type of chassidut, what court, we're talking about? Uh, So the, the, the chassid said to him, Of course, I'll do it gladly, but you should know that it's not only the hat. You have to pay attention to the coat, the buttons on the coat, how many the shoes, the stockings, how the stockings are worn. Uh, in our modern uh, uh, reality, we take all these things for granted. But if you think about it, look at the tremendous significance that is being accorded to these questions of, of dress, the hat, the buttons, which, in, in, as far as the halacha is concerned, as far as Torah mitzvot, simply... Irrelevant and immaterial. Um, and to a large extent, these minagam of the create a uh, paradoxical situation according to which the idea of chassidut, which started out being very spontaneous and very innerly, inwardly motivated, actually accumulated as time went on, a vast network of minhagim, of course, each chassidut has its own minhagim, but the tremendous volume of these minhagim creates a situation where there are all of these uh, practices are seen as obligatory, and they must be done by all the members of the chassidut, even though their source in the actual Torah sources is highly questionable. And there are all kinds of minagim which uh, to people who are not Hasidim seem very odd. Uh, The Zmirot on Shabbat. A person who is not a Hasid opens up the Zmiron and he decides what Zmirot he wants to sing on that particular Shabbat. But very often in Hasidic court it's not that way. There's a given uh, rote order of the Zmirot which are always sung on a given occasion perhaps on a given Shabbat, uh, how many times Mizmor David must be said at Sudash Lishit, all these things which simply are, are customs which originally originated with the spiritual insight of some, perhaps of some great uh, Hasidic leader, turned into obligatory customs uh, which have no source in the Halakha. And this, I think, gives us an added insight into the meaning of the girl when he criticized the Hasidim by saying, over here we're talking about Torah Hadashah. You Remember, he used the word op- Opan hadat, a new teaching, a new Torah. The changes which were wrought in the ordinary daily practice of religious Jewry underwent a tremendous change. Now, the, uh, this change, of course, not only was a, an a, a cumulative change, in other words, it added things onto the existing practice of halakha and uh, accorded significance to things and to practices which, according to the God, had absolutely no value whatsoever. But the uh, process of doing this by, by its very nature devalued all the other things which do have value. And this is a uh, critique which was detailed by Rabbi Chaim the disciple of the Donagor and there's no question that in this critique he is echo- echoing the sentiments of his master and he did this in great detail. Uh, The critique of the Haim version against the Hasidim is found primarily in the uh, section in the Nefesh Ha'ayim which appears between the third gate and the fourth gate. He has a few uh, chapters there uh, which to a large extent actually comprise the uh, critique of the mitnagdim against the Hasidim. And he describes the, the temptation of Hasidut he calls it kind of a yetzahara. The yetzahara means, in this case, that he's tempting the person with great spirituality. This is a novel idea, of course. We associate in yetzahara the tempter as someone who tries to, to seduce man, mankind with the promise of material satisfaction and physical pleasure. But Rabbi Chaim Valazin points out that in our time, there's an even greater a more dangerous yetsahara which points which uh offers the the temptation of what appears to be spiritual greatness for example he says he's a haban ash-shamaud shaya shaha yatsahara nimor shi ka halkti eh shati akh asuk koyem kharta ha ma khafta kha ra'uy shati dait bitminut Ba'al Beware of this thought, which the Harar uh, suggests. He tempts you to place all of your interest and all of your spiritual energy into this one solitary aim. To be in constant contact with spirituality. To be in constant constant experiential connection with divinity. That the whole point of Torah Mitzvot is merely to achieve this aim, and without this great attachment, this, without this experiential spirituality, Torah and Mitzvot have no value. Mm-hmm. That is the argument that Rav Chaim is attributing to the Hasidim. But pay attention to the great danger which is involved here, because he will convince you that any Torah and mitzvot without veikut, without purity of thought, is is valueless. And therefore, and therefore he'll say to you, therefore you must prepare yourself spiritually, concentrate, meditate. So that when you do the mitzvah, it will be done with pure intention. But you'll be so busy, you'll be so busy, and so concerned with these preparations. Actually, Right, the time will be, will pass, and it'll be too late. You'll prepare yourself for shacharit, and before you know it, it'll be at twelve o'clock in the afternoon. mitzvah bechavana and then the Yetzirah will simply say to you, well, that's okay. Because davening shacharit at 12 o'clock with the right intention is much better than davening shacharit at 8 o'clock while your mind is being bedeviled with with strange thoughts. Uh, Rabbi Haim Velazhin is totally opposed, of course, to this viewpoint. And we will see next time to the extent that Rebbe HaValajan is willing to go in order to uh, argue against this view, which he sees as a tremendous danger to the future of Yahadut.